your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the book of 1 Samuel and to chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. If you were with us last week, you'll recall that we looked at 1 Samuel 17, which is one of those really exciting and probably one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. It recounts for us... Um, the slaying of the Philistine giant named Goliath by the Israelite shepherd boy named David. And what was to be a winner-take-all battle between the nation of Israel and the nation of Philistia. Well, what I want us to do this week is I want us to fast forward a bit in David's life for a period that is estimated could be anywhere between 10 and 15 years. Uh, after this scene that we looked at last week in 1 Samuel 17. And I want us to notice that a lot of things have happened in David's life in those intervening years. Uh, immediately following Goliath's defeat, David gained instant notoriety in the nation of Israel. Matter of fact, he, he uh, uh, became a national hero. And he went on to become the Philistines' worst nightmare. As a matter of fact, if you begin reading some of the some of the chapters there in the middle of, of in 1 Samuel, in the, the chapters in the 20s, you'll find that, that uh, David went on to defeat the Philistines again and again and again. In fact, according to even back to chapter 18, verse 7, uh, David had become so popular in the nation of Israel that a song was written about him and sung by the women of the nation. They would sing that Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David was a very, very popular man, but as the writer of 1 Samuel goes on to tell us, his claim and his popularity came at a price. Saul, Israel's king, had come to resent David. In fact, he became so jealous of David that he repeatedly tried to kill him. He, he hurled spears at him. He chased him all throughout the countryside. So much so that David and his men, they had to go and hide in caves. They had to go hide out in, in forests and they had to constantly be on the alert lest Saul come and kill them. And what we come to recognize is that even though David, David was God's anointed, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he was nevertheless a man who was anguished. He was a man who was tormented. He was a man who was grieved to his very soul because of the, the constant pressure of having to run for his life. And that's what brings us to chapter 27. Because here we're going to read that David does something that seems utterly inconceivable in light of what we know about it. If you recall, again, from last week, when we read chapter 17, what we noticed is that David raised his hand in victory and in it he held the, the severed head of Goliath, the slain champion of the Philistine army. But here in chapter 27, David actually leads his men into an alliance with the Philistine king named Achish and he even takes up residence in the country of Philistia. And that's a really, for me, a very puzzling turn of events. In fact, when I was reading and studying through this passage and reminding myself of all the truths that are there, I thought I would really love to go back and ask him. In fact, I made it the title of my sermon. David, what's a guy like you doing in a dump like this? Well, 
Let's read and find out. 1 Samuel chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and he went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And so David dwelt with Achish at Gath and he and his men, each man with his household and David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. David and his men went up and raided the Jeshurites and the Gerzites and the Malachites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to shore, even as far as the land of Egypt. And whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah or against the southern area of the Jeremiahites or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word that we read this morning, and now I pray that as we spend time contemplating it, chewing on what we've read, that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us and that you would grant us wisdom you'd help us to push out all of the distractions of perhaps the things that have gone on in our lives this past week, maybe things that we're anticipating that will happen this coming week. Help us to push those things aside that we may concentrate our mind on this text and then allow you to work through it to change us. We believe your word is truth. Now we pray that you would sanctify us by that truth in Christ's holy name. Amen. Many of you uh, may have heard the Christian classic by John Bunyan named The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Bunyan's main character is, is named Christian. And the first half of the novel describes Christian's journey to a place called the City of God. And Christian makes his way, as he makes his way along the long and arduous journey um, he, he falls into what is described as a, as a deep, miry, muddy hole that is named the Slough of Despond. And 
Charles Swindoll, he writes, he, he says, if we were to translate Bunyan's sloth of despond into our modern vernacular today, we, would, we might call that that muddy hole would be called the pits. In other words, it's a place of dejection. It's a place of disillusionment. It's a place of despair. And as the name suggests, it's a place of despondency. Many of you are familiar with the pits. Some of you may be in the pits right now. There's no indication that Bunyan had David in mind when he wrote about Christian slide into that slough of despond, but my guess is, is that if David had been able to read Bunyan's novel, he would have been able to identify with Christian at this point. Because as our text reveals, and as I mentioned in my introduction, David had slid into that deep, miry, muddy hole himself. I want to be clear up front and just make sure that we understand that there's nothing wrong, nor is there anything sinful about sliding into the pits. Or as Swindoll puts it, there's nothing ethically or morally or spiritually wrong with our experiencing cloudy days and dark nights. In fact, he writes, those days and those nights are inevitable for all of us at some point. However, what we must concern ourselves with is what we must be careful about and what we must be careful about is what we do after we fall into the pits. In fact, that is what I believe is one of the chief concerns that our text reveals to us that I've read for you this morning. Honestly, when we, when we think about this text and, and when we think about David's history with the Philistines, it's really hard for me to imagine that there would have been any place less likely for David to go to than to Gath, to Philistia. In fact, it's very likely that that would have been the last place on earth that we would have expected him to go. And when we read that, the first question that at least comes to my mind, and perhaps many of you, is what in the world was David thinking? What... What was running through his mind that would have caused him to think that that was the place that he should go? And to that question, I would say this, never underestimate the power of words, particularly the words that you speak to yourself. I came out of my office not too long ago. I walked down the hallway. Those of you who've been there, you kind of know we've got a hallway and then you turn around and take the corner and Willene's desk is there and I was walking towards Willene's desk I heard her talking to someone so I didn't know who I was going to find but I turned the corner and I realized there was no one there but her she looked at me she said Dad, don't mind me I'm just talking to myself I told her it's fine I laughed I said well if you go to arguing with yourself let me know and we'll both go get some help but here's the thing the truth is is that all of us talk to ourselves all of the time. It may not be out loud, but those conversations are taking place nevertheless. Paul Tripp, who is a noted pastor, author, and conference speaker, once wrote this. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. In fact, he says, you are in an unending conversation with yourself. And Tripp goes on to emphasize the importance of that under, unending conversation. And he actually says this, he says, what do you regularly tell yourself about yourself? 
What do you tell yourself about God? About your circumstances? Do your words, do they encourage yourself in faith and hope and courage? Or do they stimulate doubt, discouragement, and fear? Do you remind yourself that God is near? Or do you reason within yourself that given your circumstances, He must be distant? Quite frankly, I think that list of questions would have been good for David to have had to ask himself, particularly in light of the dialogue that we read that he had with himself there in verse 1. I just want to remind you once again of what David said to himself. Listen, listen to verse 1 again. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me then I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. And so I shall escape out of his hand. These are the words David was saying to himself. You, you, can, you can hear the doubt. You can hear the discouragement and the fear in his words. What's even more strange is that the Lord never enters and figures into David's conversation at all. For some reason, David, when he assesses his current set of circumstances, he determines that he must go seek refuge in the land of his enemies. Even to the land, the city of Gath, which I would remind you was the hometown of Goliath, his enemy in chapter 17. And what we come to realize is that the words that David spoke to himself brought about actions and brought about behaviors which suggest that he believed God was distant from him. In fact, I don't know if you noticed it or not when I read verse 27, but if you were to go back and read it yourself, you will never find the Lord's name mentioned once in that entire chapter. Now, from what we know about David in his life, that, that he was the shepherd boy who had been anointed king many years before, though he had not ever ascended to the throne by this point, he nevertheless had the anointing of God upon him and the promise of God that he would be king. Not only that, but he was a man who had been, God had said, he's a man after my own heart. But when we think about that, we may wonder, how is it possible that David ever thought that the Lord was distant from him? God had not only chose to anoint him as the next king of Israel, but he'd given David success in fighting all of his enemies. You might recall that he'd given him success in killing the lion and the bear and even Goliath and all the other Philistines. Even though his life had been endangered by Saul, God had protected him all throughout every time that he had been under siege. And he had reaffirmed to David again and again and again by various people through Jonathan, through Abigail, even through Saul himself, God had confirmed that David was God's chosen man and would rightfully inherit the throne of Israel. How then could David say to himself as he did in verse 1, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. What would make David tell himself that? Well, I believe that, that what could make himself tell himself that can be summed up by one word. Weariness. As I mentioned to you earlier, for years, David had been escaping from Saul's attempts to kill him. He was weary from running. He was, he was weary from hiding in caves. 
His own family had been chased out of their home in, in, in Bethlehem, and David had had to find shelter for them in the land of Moab. And as we read in our text today, by this point in his life, David had two wives that he had to be concerned with. Not only that, but he had 600 men plus their wives and their family that they were concerned with, always in danger, always worrying about having to care for them and making sure that they had food. And every time David found some place to hide out, like the, the caves of En Gedi in chapter 24, like the wilderness of Ziph in chapter 26, every time he found some place, he and his countrymen would, would, his own countrymen who lived there would run and tell Saul that he was there and David and his men would have to pick up, pack up and move again. No wonder he was weary. No wonder he was tired. As Dale Ralph Davis has written, the constant living in the shadow of death wears and unnerves a man. And the fact is that weariness can make one ripe for a spiritual fall. And here's where you and I need to pay very close attention because what David succumbed to is something that each one of us has the potential to yield to as well. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells the churches in, in, in Galatia and Thessalonica and also in Corinth, he says, don't become weary in your fight to do good and to live an obedient life. And what that means is in the process of Christians who desire to live obedient lives and follow the Lord, we can become weary. It is possible for us to become so weary in the process, in fact, that we actually take our eyes off the Lord. And doing so will always get us into trouble. And that actually leads me to the first point that I want you to see this morning, which is this. When we ignore God's past provisions and future promises, we will make decisions based upon sight rather than on faith. When we ignore what all God has done in our past, when we ignore what God has promised to do in our future, our decisions will be based upon what we see in this life and our circumstances around us and not upon the faith that we are commanded to have. In his book entitled Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones addresses the fact that as believers, we have to be careful about listening to ourselves. He acknowledges the same thing that Paul Tripp does. And that we see David do here in verse 1. And that is that, that we talk to ourselves all the time. But he goes on to say that rather than actually listening to ourselves and the things that we say about ourselves, we should actually speak actively to ourselves. And that may seem a little confusing, but, but let me explain what he means. The point that he makes is simply that when we focus our attention on our circumstances, we take our eyes off the Lord. And when that happens, our conversation with ourselves turns from how God has provided and from how he has protected us in the past. It turns away from the promises that he has clearly given to us about our future. And then particularly when we are in a vulnerable state, such as David was, due to the weariness of our soul, what we begin to do is to imagine all of the negative possibilities that can happen and occur. Instead of instead of listening to the voices that, that begin almost immediately, as soon as our eyes open in the morning, those voices begin speaking to us. Instead of listening to those voices, what, what Martin Lloyd-Jones says is that we need to go on the offensive and we need to actually remind ourselves of God, who God is, what He has done, and what He has pledged 
for himself to do. Now, if you'll remember, that's exactly what David did when he was in Saul's tent back in chapter 17. You remember that from last week? Saul wouldn't let David go out and fight Goliath because he was not a seasoned warrior like the Philistine giant was. But David said, don't make the mistake of thinking that I am inexperienced at fighting because I have faced both lion and bear and God has delivered both of them into my hands just as he will deliver that uncircumcised Philistine blasphemer named Goliath. That was the same approach that David should have taken here in chapter 27. Sadly, he gave in to his weariness. He succumbed to his fears. And in doing so, he failed to recall God's past provisions and his future promises. And he made an ill-advised decision based upon sight rather than upon faith. And David's conversation with himself here in verse 1 had left God completely out of the equation. And he began looking for a way out of the pressure that he found himself under. And when that happened, suddenly the city of Gath, which, let me remind you once again, was the hometown of Israel's and David's enemy Goliath, suddenly Gath didn't seem like such a bad place to go. And that should inform us about ourselves. You see, I believe that the city of Gath actually serves as a placeholder. It's just a, a city that represents any place and actually represents anything that you and I are tempted to run to whenever we feel weary and tired and alone. Gath is where you naturally try to crawl to out of the slough of despond. Gath is the place that you run to when you crawl out of the pits. Gath is our default destination when we become pessimistic because we've taken our eyes off the Lord and focused them strictly on the horizontal and on ourselves. And here's what you and I need to understand, and that is particularly when you're weary, what you say and what you continue to say to yourself will determine what you believe to be true. And what you believe to be true will determine what you trust in. And what you trust in will determine where you go and what you do. That's what our text reveals happened to David. What we read is that he left Israel to go to Gath the land of the Philistines, and in doing so, he crossed a line that should have never been crossed. And from there, things only went from bad to worse. But before things got worse, I want you to know things got better, at least they seemed to. Look at verse 4 again. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath. So he sought him no more. Yay! That's what I was wanting. That's what I was looking for. It worked. I came up with the right scheme. I put together the right plan. I figured out exactly where I needed to go and what I needed to do to take the pressure off. And it worked. Saul quit looking for David. Perhaps for the very first time in who knows how long, David was able to go to sleep at night, not having to worry about getting up the next morning and packing up and running for his life. The story doesn't end there, though. Verse 5 tells us that David convinced Achish, the king of Gath, to give him a town where him and his band of men could go live. So he gave him the town of Ziklag, which is about 25 miles south of, of Gath. Things suddenly were looking up for David. Not only does he have security, but he's got freedom. 
And the text goes on to tell us that David lived there for 16 months. And what we learn, though, about David during that 16-month period is that David proved himself to be quite the schemer. You see, he'd crossed a line that he never should have crossed by going and living in that country to begin with and settling in there with the Philistines. But in doing so, David risked ruining his own reputation in his home country of Israel. In fact, that's exactly what Achish thought he had done. Verse 12, verse 12 says, So Achish believed David, saying he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Some versions say that he has made himself an utter stench to his people. In other words, Achish believed that David stunk to his own kinfolk. And he says, therefore, he will be my servant forever. That's exactly what David wanted Achish to think. You see, Achish thought that David was going out and conducting raids against the people of Israel. Whenever David would come back from the raids that he went on, he would bring back all of the, the, the spoils. And, and he would bring some to the king, which was customary. And whenever he would do that, the king said, where have you been? And David would insinuate that he had been fighting against his own people. Rather, what he was doing was conducting warfare against the Amalekites and the Jeshurites and the Gerzites. And, and when he was doing that, we're not told of any of those self-conversations that David was having, but we have to know that they were taking place because people talk to themselves all the time. And I can only imagine that as David is going out and doing all of these things, as he's scheming, as he's putting himself in these situations that he ought not have been in, I can only imagine what his self-conversations were like. I know what I'm doing is not right. I understand that. But technically, these people that I'm raiding are the enemies of Israel anyway, so I'm really doing my own people a favor. Maybe he said, so what if I'm lying to Achish? He's only a Philistine anyways. He doesn't deserve my... He didn't deserve to hear the truth from me. And after all, he's getting all the spoils from the war. What does it matter to him where I get it from? I'm doing what I'm doing for the protection of my family and the protection of my men. And if I don't do this, we will starve and they'll send us back to Israel where Saul will be there to kill us. Now, I will admit, none of those conversations are included in Scripture. But how often do you and I say things just like that in our attempts to justify and to excuse attitudes and actions that in our own lives we know to be wrong and inconsistent with God's Word? Brothers and sisters, we must never, ever underestimate the power of words. And what those words, when they are said to yourself over and over and over again, will lead you to do. Now, we might wonder why David was able to get away with this ruse for so long. Verse 9 tells us he killed every man, woman. He only took the spoils. Verse 11 says that he did that because he operated off of the motto that dead men tell no tales. And so he left no human being alive who could go back to Achish, the king of Gath, and say, David's not raiding Israel. He's raiding us. What we come to understand is that deceit and ruthlessness were the staples that kept David alive during the 16-month period. 
Never, ever, ever underestimate the power of words that you say to yourself. That leads me to the second point that I want you to see this morning. The second point is this. Trusting in things other than the provision and promises of God will inevitably lead to a life of deceit. You place your faith and your trust and your confidence and your ability to scheme and your ability to come up with your own solutions. And even if they seem successful at the time, I want you to understand they will inevitably lead to a life of deceit. David was actively deceiving Achish, but even more difficult for us to get our hands around here is that he was, he was actively deceiving himself. He had convinced himself that what he was doing was okay. And we should be justifiably shocked when we read what we do in this account. And it should cause us to turn an investigative and a discerning eye upon our own lives to question whether we too are engaged in deceiving ourselves because we have failed to completely trust in God and in His provisions for our lives. I told you that things go from bad to worse from David, but they even still get worse yet because David was so good. His scheme was so good that it so completely fooled the king of Gath that, read with me, chapter 28, verse 2 verses. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. So David said to Achish, uh, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Boom. All of David's plans just backfired on him. They didn't backfire. They actually blew up in his face. You ever been there? Maybe you've been the recipient. Maybe you've been the one who's given the news and you've told somebody something that they absolutely did not expect to hear and you just sort of watched as the blood drained from their face and they got all white. I can just see David doing that. When Achish says, look, we're going to battle Israel and guess what, big boy? You're going to be my chief guardian and you're going to be right there with me when we go into battle. And David he starts soft-shoeing, trying to dance. I, I think he's trying to figure out how he can give the most uh, inauspicious answer that he can. Well, surely you know what your servant can do. I'm not sure Achish knew exactly what David could do. I'm not sure David knew exactly what David could do. I do know this. His deception of the Philistine king had been so successful that he is now in the position of being a force to attack his own countrymen. And as one writer has put it this way, the only suitable response to David is, say, is the saying designed to warn children against lying. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. Over the course of the past 16 months, David had become weary from all the troubles that he had experienced at the hands of Saul and his weariness had led him to a pessimistic outlook on life. He had allowed himself to stop focusing on the providence and the protection and the promises of God, and he had started focusing on himself and his own circumstances. He began feeling sorry for himself, and he began telling himself that unless he took some drastic measures, measures that under normal circumstances the man would have never dreamed of taking, unless he did that, he felt he would surely be swept away and he would perish at the hands of Saul. David turned his attention from the Lord 
And as a result, he deceived himself and he deceived others to the point that by all accounts, there was no distinguishable difference between him and the pagan Philistines among whom he lived. David's plan to flee Gath may be assessed by an appeal to Proverbs 14, verse 12. You remember that one? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We may sympathize with David for the burden of the responsibility that he felt and the fear that he was under, but we must recognize that his own clever plan had caused him to cross a line and had placed him and his entire future in grave jeopardy. How much better would it have been if what David did could be described by a different proverb? Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. It's that point that leads me to the third point that I want you to see this morning. And it's this. True wisdom always begins with trusting the Lord and submitting to the instructions and commands of His Word. That's where true wisdom begins. The Bible tells us that, that true wisdom is, begins with the fear of the Lord. It's not the quaking and, and running away from God fear. It's the fear of recognizing that what He has to say to us is the most important things that we could ever understand about ourselves and about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Just imagine how differently David would have acted if that had been where he had started. Imagine, imagine how different his conversations would have been with himself if he had started there. Furthermore, just imagine how different some of our own decisions that we've made in our own lives would have been if we had started there. Well, the writer of 1 Samuel leaves us hanging and we begin wondering, well, is David going to go into battle with Achish against his own people or not? What's going to happen? Is he going to go fight? What's he going to do? That's a good place for us to end our reading this morning, but an encouragement to you, go ahead and read and find out. Let me tell you, things get worse for David before they get better. But I want to leave you with just a couple of things and then we'll close this morning. The first thing that I want you to consider about this passage that we've studied so far this morning is this. We shouldn't expect anything to get better for David until David's self-conversations change. We shouldn't expect anything to get better for David until, until the Lord becomes the focus for him again. That's what Christian learned in Bunyan's story. See, the harder that Christian worked to pull himself out of that slough of despond, the worse things got for him. That's the way it gets for David too. In fact, it wasn't until Christian cried out to help. That's the name of the, the hero who comes to Christian's aid. And only then was Christian able to be freed and David is going to have to learn that same thing as well. The second thing that I would have you to note is just this. The Bible doesn't seek to make us hero worshipers of biblical characters. You see, up to this point, you may have been a little tempted to feel sorry for David and to pull for him as he struggled against Saul trying to kill him and to feel sorry for him under the circumstances that he faced. But then... Then you are faced straight away with the treachery and the deception that David was, was 
pulling off and the things that he was engaging in. And what I would want you to know is though David holds a special place in redemptive history, David is not the hero of the Bible. We are not commanded to place our hope in David any more than we're commanded to place our hope in Abraham or in the Apostle Paul or Moses or anybody else in Scripture. Like David, all of those characters in the Bible are sinners just like you and just like me. And so if both of those things are true, if, if on our own we continue to slide farther and farther down to our own destruction unless we have help and if it is also true that our help does not come from our own man-made heroes, then where are we supposed to turn? I'm so glad you asked that question. Because the Scriptures reveal to us that there is one to whom we can turn. The Scriptures tell us that there is one who understands our burdens. There is one who will never fail us and never disappoint us. And His name is Jesus. And He is the center point of the Bible. And He is the focal point of redemption story. And He is the only one who can truly come into our lives and look us in the eye and tell us that when we are in our most weary state, worn down from the fight that we are facing, he can say to us as he does in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, that is the hope every single one of us in our distressed state have is that Jesus Christ stands there open-armed, waiting for us, calling to us to come to Him. And that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Whatever burdens we may have that weigh us down, we must, we must, we must lean on Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for the rest that we need from our struggles. We must run to Jesus for our safety and for our shelter. We must always be careful, particularly when we're weary and when we're tired, when the battles that we face in this life, be they physical illness, be they emotional, be they relational, be they financial, when those things wear us down, if we are not careful, we will be tempted to run to wherever or whatever our personal gaff may be. Unfortunately, that may be the arms of someone who are not our spouse. It may be that some run to the bottle of alcohol. It may be that some run to drugs or to any other number of things that we may run to in order to find a way to relieve the pressure and to alleviate the pain that we experience. But we must not be deceived. Our only true and our only permanent help comes from the Lord and from the Lord alone. Brothers and sisters, that's how a guy like David ended up in a dump like Gath. We must remind ourselves of that truth again and again and again. Never underestimate the power of words, particularly the words that you repeat to yourself. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.